Well, I have greetings from New Mexico, from our student group there in online church right now. At least the girls' dorm is. Um, They're about an hour behind us. I assume they're getting ready to head to worship, and they're getting ready for worship right now. But they say hello from New Mexico, uh, and I'm looking forward to them being back. I know many of us will look forward to being back. I asked Josh, I said, it's going to be strange without the youth group up front. Maybe you should ask people if they want to volunteer to come down he didn't think it was a good idea either, so he didn't invite you to come down. But if, if you get bored in the back and you just want to sit right up front, um, feel free to come be a teenager for the day. But we're glad to hear from them. Glad they're on online church this morning and um, with us. Isn't it amazing the opportunities God has given us in this century to share the gospel? That we can be in church right here in our home region, all of us coming together in church, and yet we've got people out of town at camps, and they can stop in, they can visit, they can be a part of the service, or later this afternoon or this week, podcast goes up on Monday mornings. If you want to listen to just the message, uh, you can do that anytime on Monday mornings as well. It's, a, it's an amazing time to live with amazing opportunities. And we, we live in the flow of about a 20-year revival in the, in the heart of worship and what God has been doing in worship. And this morning, we're going to look at a parable that talks about preparing for worship, but preparing for worship slightly different than the way we think about it. I know my routine is pretty simple. Um, I get up and Saturday night, about sometime in the middle of the baseball game, Carrie, my wife, will look at me and she'll say, okay, do you have your clothes laid out for tomorrow morning? <laughs> have you tried them on? Do you know they fit? Do you know that they match? Do you, do you, you know, when I go through this routine, I said, yeah, everything's laid out, everything's, everything's ready to go. Get up Sunday morning, go through that process, get everything ready, get dressed, all that kind of stuff. And then the very last step before I come to worship is I have to stand in front of her. And we get a check. I thought about it this morning because um, I actually didn't get the check this morning. I just kind of slipped out the door. And so um, for online church, if, if these like tan buttons that I didn't realize were tans, that was not even buttoned. Um, I didn't, you know, if, I'm, if I didn't do a good choice today, don't blame Carrie. That's all, that's all I'm saying. Um, and that's the routine. And then we get to church and the, the band's playing, rehearsing, and we go over everything. We go over things multiple times throughout the week to do everything. We test everything, all the equipment, uh, everything's involved. I mean, it's actually a pretty arduous process to just get ready for worship. What can happen sometimes, professionally, especially for those who approach it professionally, what can happen sometimes if we're not careful is we spend all this effort and energy getting ready for worship and we forget to address our hearts. Am, am I ready to have a conversation with God? Am I ready to hear something he wants to speak to me? Am, am I ready to be able to address needs to him? And we've already been praying in our small groups and Bible studies this morning. We've been praying in lobbies and in here. Uh, we've been praying for one another because we've had needs come up this week. We've had things happen and we need God's intervention are, are we really ready, though, for what he wants to do today? And it's not just the study of the scripture. It's, it's the whole process. 
It's the participating and engaging in worship. It's, it's the time of prayer and it's the openness to prayer. It's, it's the opportunity and the, the advantageous moment for, for relationships and authentic relationships. And it's the, the opportunity to be a part of service. You know, the vast majority of our people serve someplace on Sunday morning. They do it throughout the week too, but they're just as energized to get here and serve as they are to receive. Are our hearts prepared for worship. The parables of Jesus, these, these stories, um, struggled a little bit with them the, the last few weeks because they're very serious and they can feel very intense and, and, and it, it can be difficult to go through. And this is one of those ones that if we're not careful, it can feel so intense. But it's because it's so important. Because our heart However you want to describe that, not just the physical presence of what's happening in our anatomy at at this point in time, but the whole concept of what we think and what we're experiencing, what we're open to, what we're closed to, how how we want to interact with God, whether we know him or we don't know him, whether we feel like we've been forgiven or we feel like we can never be forgiven, whether we feel like this was a successful week and a victorious week, like we started the service, or whether this has been a more difficult week and victory seems very elusive at this moment. The condition of the totality of our, our mind and, and our emotions and everything mixed together creates this perspective on our hearts. And there may be some that are thinking, well, it's just not that tough. I mean, I've been coming to church all my life. I know the routine. I've got it all down. I know everything. I've listened to Christian radio, so I know all the songs we're singing. Um, Josh posts the podcast and, and posts the song on, on Spotify. Maybe you, maybe you heard that, listened to that. Maybe you're part of the teams and you've been practicing and rehearsing. It's like, yeah, well, we're ready. But what's God going to do today? And that's an issue that Jesus addresses with this story. And so let's look at the story. It's in Luke chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 9. And in Luke 18, Jesus has run across a group of people who not only believe they're prepared for worship, but believe they know everything about worship and believe they know everything that should be done in a person's individual, personal, spiritual journey because they've laid out all the regulations and they've laid out all the rules and they've laid out all the parameters and they keep checking it. They've got that list and they they keep checkmarking everything off. And honestly, as we'll see in this story, from that perspective, they approach that moment of worship as if they're doing God a favor. It's as if you stop to pray and say, God, I'm so glad you get to hear from me today. Now, Jesus is going to show us another individual who barely made it. As we'll see in just a moment, he, he barely even enters into the moment of worship because he feels so unworthy and he feels like there's absolutely no way God could ever be pleased or God could ever love him or God could ever even forgive him. He feels like it's the only hope, it's probably the last hope he's got is to be in the presence of God and find grace and find forgiveness, but yet he doesn't feel like that's going to happen. When we gather in person, online, we are that same mixture of people. There's everything from the extreme that thinks God's really fortunate we're here today to the extreme that's, I don't even know that I'm qualified to be here today. Let's look at the story. In Luke chapter 18, verse 9, Jesus says, 
that this parable, and Luke includes the historical background, this parable is for some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And the net result of a self-righteousness means that they look down, they're, they're judgmental on everyone else. And then the story begins in verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. This was regular routine worship in Jewish culture. Four times a day, it was open for the community to come in and pray. Just like we would attend a service, just like you set your alarm clock this morning, you made the arrangements, you looked at GPS, figured out how long it would take you to be here. You made sure you knew how to log into YouTube or you knew how to log into the website. You made, you made the arrangements to arrive at a certain time. These two guys have done exactly the same thing. They prepared, they, they made sure they could be there at that designated time when the temple would be open for people to come pray. And so they've arrived there, and these two individuals, Jesus describes them as a Pharisee and as a tax collector. Now, let me just real quickly describe what those are. Pharisees are ultra-religious fanatics. They had created over time a system of legalism, of legality, rules, and regulations, and that system they had dedicated their entire life to. And so everything about a relationship with God was about that regulation, that legalistic approach. If I'm going to do everything right, if I'm going to click off everything that's demanded of me, if I'm going to check every single box, which was impossible because over time they had taken the 10 original rules, you've heard of them as the 10 commandments, And they had made it multiplied by tens of thousands of rules. And so Pharisees had dedicated their entire life to this lifestyle of religion. Now, the one good thing you can say about a Pharisee is that clearly they were men. In this case, it was only men that were allowed to be Pharisees. And they were men who gave themselves fully there was a sense of drivenness and purpose to know God. But the self-accomplishment of their lives had hardened their hearts. And that's what we see with this first individual. He begins his prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Now, I want you to remember for a second, before we put any names to it, this is a parable. It's a story. It's fictitious. But it reflects reality and it reflects truth. And so if you're thinking of somebody right now, let's not judge them too hard because we're all going to need grace before this is over with. But it is that self-exaltation, that self-congratulations of this moment. I am thankful that I am not like everybody else. Then he lists the things he's not. He's not greedy. He's not unrighteous. He's living according to the rules. He knows the regulations and he's abiding by every single one of them. He's not an adulterer. He's not even like, and then it turns out that the second man in this story had come to the temple and he was a tax collector by occupation. Most Pharisees made that their occupation. They were so driven to be right for God that they gave up everything else, even care of their own families. They gave up everything else to follow that pathway. 
A tax collector, on the other hand, was a normal citizen, just like you and me, who needed to do employment. Employment was difficult to come by. You couldn't get a good salary in in the normal circumstances of the economy of that time, oppressed by Rome. And so they were considered as traitors to the Jews because they sold out and became tax collectors for their own people. They served Rome and collected the funds from their own people. And the way they made their money was they determined the margin that was set. And so if, if Scott owes $10 in taxes to Rome, the tax collector had the freedom to set the price. And so he could say, well, you owe 12 because 10's for Rome and 2's for the tax collector. But most of them didn't want to stop there. And so they would say it's 18. And 10's for Rome and 8's for the tax collector. You can imagine a group of people, a group of individuals that made the decision to work for the oppressing government, to work for the foreign invaders against your own flesh and blood neighbors and your own ethnicity and your own occupied people, now an oppressed and occupied people. These guys aren't liked. Nobody really liked tax collectors. And that's what he says. I am not any of these things. I've not committed adultery. I'm not unrighteous. I'm following the rules. I'm not greedy. I'm not even like this tax collector. Then he goes on to say things he does. He, he fasts twice a week. Twice a week he does without some amount or some portion of food. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth. Legally, I give exactly what I'm expected to give. I, I give a tenth of everything I get. And so even financially, the, the area that seems to be the last thing we sometimes want to turn over to God, even in that area, he's doing it. He's doing it right. He's making it happen. And, and he's giving and the temple has those resources by which it can do the work that God wants them to do. He's on target. Somehow I got a feeling I've met this guy. And if I'm, if I'm sure, he calculated that tenth down to the last decimal. It was exactly a tenth. And if there was 10.1% at some point in time, he probably would have asked for the 0.1 back. But nonetheless, he was doing it. And again, before we're too critical, the highest average of giving in the United States has been consistent for about 20 years. And it's typically the charismatics and the assembly of gods, and they give about 0.3%. They give about 3%, they give about 3% of their income to give according to their tax records and according to contribution records. So before we get too, too, too irritated with this guy, he is actually doing what he's supposed to do. And that becomes the whole distinguishing mark of what Jesus' story is talking about. He's doing everything right, but his heart isn't there. Or he wouldn't have been able to judge this other man who came to pray. This tax collector who he politically hated who he probably religiously justified his hatred and who he disagreed with and wanted nothing to do. The tax collector, on the other hand, this is a bold move, in my opinion, socially to go to the temple when you know everybody in the temple doesn't like you. Everybody in the temple has already decided that God has judged you. Everybody there is not going to be pleased that you're there. But his desperation, the drivenness is different. We've got one man driven to do everything right because God needs him. We've got another man driven out of desperation to see if there's any hope, if there's any possibility God could have mercy. Mercy. 
And look at the difference in the way they approach this moment of prayer. They arrive for worship. They arrive for this moment of prayer. They're in the temple. You got the, ta- the Pharisee over here. You've got this tax collector over here. He stands off at a distance. The tax collector standing far off. He knows he's not welcome. You know the worst part about not being welcome at church is somebody seeking and inquiring like the way the tax collector is, they, they don't know who doesn't welcome them. They don't, they don't know if it's just us as a group of people. They don't know if, if the group, the organization doesn't welcome them. They, they don't know if it's just the individual. Maybe that person's just having a really bad day and as a result, they didn't want to talk to me. They want to acknowledge me. Maybe that one person doesn't like me. Maybe that one person is like the Pharisee. He knows who I am occupationally. He's seen me on the streets. He's seen me at the tax booth. He's had to pay his taxes. And so I know he doesn't like me. You have that experience anywhere you go. Honestly, you have that experience in a store. You have that experience at a restaurant. You have that experience anywhere you go. But the worst part is he doesn't know if maybe the unacceptance of the congregation reflects an unacceptance from God. So he stands at the distance. He stands aloof. He doesn't sit with anybody. He doesn't interact with greeters. He doesn't, he doesn't interact a whole lot in the worship because he doesn't know what's going on and he doesn't even feel like he has any right to be there. Jesus says this man's standing far off This man won't even lift his eyes, won't even raise his eyes towards heaven. Now we know because we've been going to a church for a while and and most of, many of us are believers. There's always somebody who's probably hasn't made the decision yet to trust in Christ. But we've been in a Western civilized culture that has enough thoughts about the concept of God and enough conversations about the concept of God that we instinctually, even as Christians, we instinctually, when we talk about God, we talk about his majesty, we instinctually lift our eyes even though we know you don't have to do that i mean god's not in the clouds god's god's not on a mountaintop i mean god is everywhere god is right here 100 degrees 110 degree heat index he's present with us it's not that bad in here i was talking about if you were outside um although it gets stuffy in here at times it's hard for the units to keep up with things this time of year But we instinctually look up. This man, when it comes to his approaching God, instinctively looked down. He hides his eyes from the potential presence of God. And this may seem unusual to us in our culture because nobody comes into our church and does this. Um, but he's striking his chest. He's, he's, he's literally beating against himself. And that's common in Jewish culture because they're in a very emotional culture and they're very upfront and, and very open with their emotions. And so anytime there was mourning or grief or a sense of desperation, it was normal to express that. It was, it was normal to express that in your voice and in the loudness of your voice. It was normal to express it in your tears. It was normal to express it oftentimes by, by ripping clothes or by picking up dust and ashes and throwing them on yourself to express the grief. The, the, the openness of your heart was a culturally acceptable thing. And this guy is beating himself out of distress. He's that upset 
about his condition. And then his prayer is simple. God have mercy on me. A sinner. You know, if you've been around church life very long, you know that we talk about sinners' prayers. We talk about how to pray. I do it almost weekly in a service. I'll say this, something to the effect, hey, this is how I ask Jesus into my life. And, and we sometimes try to make it kind of long. You want to, it's like you want to cover everything you know about God in that one prayer. So I know everything and understand everything about my sin. And I'm going to make sure God understands it. And then I'm going to do it repeatedly because we don't know the rituals. And so there's a lot of talk and conversation inside churches and amongst the especially inside pastor's offices, about how should someone pray? Well, this is probably the clearest and best example I've ever seen. God, have mercy on me. I know the night I became a Christian, that's exactly how I felt. I used the prayer that was written out for me because I didn't know any other prayer. But the heart of my prayer was, God, have mercy on me. Nobody had to convince me I was a sinner. This guy actually says it flat out. Just like we just taught all the kids in Bible school, those ABCs, admit and confess and, and then choose and acknowledge that you'll trust in Jesus. He didn't have to convince this guy was a, he was a sinner. He already knew he was a sinner. He knew he was an outcast to society. He assumed, and he probably was an outcast to the temple, to the church, and he assumed and thinks he's probably an outcast to God. Nobody wants him, including God. And so his only plea is for mercy. God, have mercy on me. Why? Because I'm a sinner. Which, of course, when you start to read Scripture, you'll find out that's true of every single one of us. The Apostle Paul, who was a brilliant example of a Pharisee who becomes like a tax collector, a Pharisee who gives up on his righteousness in order to experience the true righteousness that comes out of a relationship with Jesus and the forgiveness that Jesus gives us, understood that. Paul had prayed thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, millions of prayers as a Pharisee. He had done all of it. But when he met Jesus face to face, he, like this tax collector, bowed his head, wouldn't dare to look up, and in his heart began to trust in Jesus as the Son of God. God, have mercy on me. Now here's where Jesus' story, in Jesus' own application, takes a turn that would have been surprising in the first century AD when Jesus shared this story. And it's surprising, quite honestly, today in the 22nd century as well. If you do the final perspective, you've got the self-exaltation of the Pharisee. You've got the self-examination of the sinner, the tax collector. And then Jesus says, in his conclusion... I tell you this, in verse 14, Luke chapter 18, verse 14, this one, referring to the one he just referenced, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Two men came to church that day with the intention to be with God. 
One felt like God was really fortunate that he was coming to talk to him. One couldn't grasp or understand that God would have anything to do with him because of his life choices. Jesus' conclusion was the one that was so self-confident and so self-exalting missed the point and went home unjustified. In other words, outside of a relationship with God. Everything he had driven for was lost in that moment. The one who didn't think there was any hope or any chance, who all he could utter as he screamed and as he beat himself out of his sorrow and his grief, God, have mercy on me. That man, Jesus said, went home justified, which means he's now in a relationship with God. Because God wants to have a relationship with all of us. It's critical we understand that. But most of the time, What hinders him is not the abject, obvious sin that everybody agrees is wrong. But it's the quiet, insidious sin that we actually think makes us okay and God should accept us because of who we are that actually disqualifies us. When we prepare for worship, it's not wrong. I I made a joke about it earlier. It's not wrong to think about how you're going to dress. I hope you're thankful for that that we do that as a staff more strategically than you would probably imagine or even want to know. There's nothing wrong with that. Unless we arrive today, we came up onto this platform to lead and sing and worship, teach, and somehow we thought, God's so lucky I'm here. Instead of thinking, you know what? This has just been another one of those weeks Maybe my single prayer today should be, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I want to close with this as the band comes back. I want to read you the testimony, the the witness, the explanation of a life that was changed. This time, it's a Pharisee. It's Paul, who I mentioned earlier. He had done everything right and found that all that he had done was insufficient and all he ever needed was God's mercy and God's grace. And after that moment, when Paul went home that day, he was justified. He was in a relationship with God. And as he wrote to a church in Philippi, he described that experience like this uses some legal terminology of the Jews. For we who are the circumcision, which was one of the major rituals that identified you as a faithful follower of God, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh anymore. We've given up our rules, our regulations, and our checklist. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. He had done it so right, even now after the life He's convinced, and probably correctly, that he has, could have confidence in himself. But he doesn't anymore. He describes this transition. If anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, as the law requires. I am of the bloodline, the nation of Israel, as the law requires. I am of the tribe of Benjamin, the most respected and admired tribe of all the Israelite tribes. 
I am a Hebrew born of Hebrews. His DNA comes back only Hebrew, only Israelite. Regarding the law, I was a Pharisee. Regarding zeal, I even persecuted the church. Regarding the righteousness that is in the law, I was blameless. But here's the catch. Here's the change. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. My goal now, my goal is to know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Everything Paul had done in a moment he lost when he said to God, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And he gained more than he could ever anticipate or ever know. Talk to anyone you want to in this room, anyone you know that's a believer in Christ, and we'll all give you the same answer. There is nothing as great as meeting and knowing Jesus. It's what we live our life for. And all you need to do right in this moment is simply say, Lord, have mercy on me. Forgive me. And you'll start a new relationship that changes everything. And for the good, you'll know God personally. You can pray it out loud. You can pray it sitting there. You can pray it while we're singing. But if you pray it, God will hear it and God will answer it.